Now we're a real podcast. I always dreamed of being a real podcast. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown. This is the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 23rd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty we're well. We're in the studio a little bit earlier than usual. But, oh, yep. You know, we're we're, we're going to power through. Powering through. Yeah. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Neil. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. You guys were kind of lackadaisical, so I'm trying to bring the bring. I'm bringing the heat. I know the irony is that y- for you, it's like the earliest of any of us uh, yes, on the West Coast. Yes, that's how time zones work. Yes. <laughs> so. Oh, good. This is going to be this kind of a show. That's exciting. That's great. <laughs> you guys, I'm in such a good mood. The Minnesota Twins <laughs> last oh, night, Monday night in the first inning, top of the first. Walked, I believe, the first two batters and then turned a triple, triple play. play. And it, it was even better because it came against the Yankees. Guys, I mean, what a, what a day. What a day. What style triple play? Uh, third to second to first. Oh, old classic. A little around the horn triple play, of course. It was great listening to the TV broadcast of it because as it was happening, you could see the like the recognition that it was going to happen. And that by the end, the announcer ended it with... That's unbelievable, or something like that. And I was like, yep, sure was. Been waiting for that triple play call his whole career, yeah. I guess. When was the last Twins I, triple play? Well, I believe this is the 13th that the in Twins their history. have. I don't know yeah. if that's, I don't know for context whether that's a lot. They had a 5-4-3 in 2017 against the Angels with uh, Yunel Escobar and Albert Pujols on base. So that's See, that helps. That's, yeah. on easy, <laughs> that's turning a triple play on easy mode. <laughs> I have to imagine 5-4-3 is easily the most common triple play type. Oh, that's interesting. But I don't actually know. I would think it's e- sometimes easier to double somebody, somebody like off. off a base. Yeah. Then you get the, the, the rare unassisted triple plays. How many oh, times does that Those are history? amazing. You see a lot where the first baseman catches the line drive, steps on the bag, and then throws to get the other guy going back to second. So I guess that's a three three five or something like that would be common. According to Wikipedia, uh, always a trusted source, there have been fifteen unassisted triple plays in history. The last one was done. I'm not even going to ask you guys to guess because this is super random. It was done against the Mets. You got it, Jeff. Actually, uh, yeah, you you've got it. So it was done nine years and eleven months ago to the day that we're taping this. It oh, was on wow. August twenty third, two thousand and nine. Eric Bruntlett, uh, second baseman for the Phillies, uh, against the Mets. He caught a line drive, touched second, and then tagged the runner out. Uh, helpfully, there's a description uh, of the play. So, wow. Well, that's exciting. It's rare. It's rarer than a perfect game in yeah. the history of baseball. Triple plays are so fun. See, people people say baseball is dead. I say, give me a triple play. Right. The things like this restore your faith in baseball. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Also, this weekend, we had an Irishman winning the British Open, but not the one we were expecting going into the tournament. Shane Lowry won at Royal Portrush. Um, kind of going away on Sunday. It wasn't actually. Yeah, that it was close. not close. Not exciting, really. One of the biggest no. margins of victory in British Open history, I want to say. And yet, what were his odds, Jeff, going into the into the weekend? What what kind of money could you get on Shane Lowry? If I had to guess, he was probably about 
in the hundred to one range, if I had to guess. Okay. You know, I he's not a completely out of nowhere British Open like a Todd Hamilton type. Yeah, that was a really random one. It certainly wasn't someone people were readily predicting prior to the tournament. I just want to share that at four thirty one on Saturday. G. Foster slacked. Lowry will fold. <laughs> Another strong prediction. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that while Lowry was not folding. I was like, Jeff said this guy would I'm just going to stop predicting things altogether. Yeah, I'm just going to remove no, myself. Not. That's not possible. I, I feel like... This is a 538 podcast, Jeff. Well... You're never going to stop predicting. Maybe I'll just predict the favorites... And do the safe play. Boring predictions. <laughs> All right. Well, on today's show, we will assess the role of analytics in shifting position values across leagues. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. This week marks the start of NFL training camps, but a few big names might not take the field. Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott may hold out on joining his teammates in the hopes of negotiating a more favorable contract. Here's Mike Florio on Pro Football Talk discussing Elliott's move. Huge performance is expected this year from Ezekiel Elliott. The fact that he is taking a stand, if he indeed is, and it sure sounds like it, it's smart. Because now is the time to apply the leverage to the Cowboys to get what Elliott wants. Elliott could join a list of running backs who have recently held out from practice, or in Le'Veon Bell's case, a whole season, in search of more lucrative contracts. We're going to take a look at why this might be, if Elliott does have any leverage over the Cowboys, as Mike Florio suggests, and how analytics might play a role in the depreciation of positions, not only in the NFL, but across sports leagues. Let's start with Zeke. Jeff, can you explain to us why he would decide to hold out and what the precedent is for this move? Well, I mean, I think you mentioned the precedent or the most recent precedent being Le'Veon Bell, who sat out all of last year. And it really, if you remember where we were a year ago, it was like, he's going to miss preseason. He might miss uh, the first game. He's, he's going to miss the first cut. Co- and then it was just like, no, he's not going to play this year. And I think they're similar in the sense that they have a rookie contract winding down and they want to be paid. I mean, they want, you know, the guaranteed money that comes with that second contract you get in the NFL. And especially at a position that is honestly the most injury prone and takes the most hits and most damage on a week by week basis of any position out there. So they are at severe risk of being injured. So I think the idea of playing another season without having, you know, that full guaranteed payday is probably a little unnerving. They'd rather lock it up now. And I think from their standpoint, they feel like they have some leverage over the Cowboys because the Cowboys drafted Zeke quite high. They invested a lot of draft capital in him. And, you know, I think they're. Their logic is they're not going to just, you know, let this guy walk away when they, you know, spent a fourth overall pick on him. And obviously he's been quite productive when he's been on the field uh, for Dallas, particularly that rookie year. Neil, what's driving the depreciation of running backs across the league? Well, I think there's a few things in place. Um, and, and one of the big ones might be the influence of analytics. So people, you know, kind of wonk uh, types like me have been <laughs> asking for years, why do teams run the ball 
as much as they do. And and some of that is just simple math. Like if you look last year, the average pass play gained 6.4 yards per attempt, and that's after taking away the losses uh, from sacks. Mm. The average run play gained 4.4 yards per attempt. So yards aren't everything. You're not trying to win the yardage battle. You're trying to score more points. But I think it goes to show that the, the average passing play is a lot more efficient than the average running play. And there are things that can mitigate that, right? Like, for instance, if you look at completion percentages, about 35% of all passing plays gained zero yards. They were incomplete. And 2.4% of passing plays were intercepted. Whereas on rushing plays, 88% of running plays gained positive yardage and about a half a percent of running plays resulted in a fumble lost. So there's less risk. You sort of have more guaranteed yardage if you run the ball, but that's not really enough to necessarily offset the the huge uh, payoff in uh, average efficiency on passing plays. And coaches now, now that we've sort of moved away from the old school, tough-minded coaches who, by the way, I think were biased toward a running game because running the ball is a lot more physical. It's, it's inherently more physical than passing the ball, not just in terms of a guy hurling himself into a pit full of players and trying to come out. But just in the way that blocking works, right? Run blocking is the the offensive linemen are exploding forward. They're initiating contact on pass blocking. They're actually moving backwards and trying to sort of stay in front of pass rushers and create a pocket. So I think there's a lot of things that sort of bias coaches uh, in the past toward running the ball and against passing. I mean, there's that old quote, when you pass the ball, three things can happen and only one of them is good, <laughs> meaning you could either complete it, which is good, you could incomplete it, that's bad, or you could you get it intercepted that's also bad but if you look at the way that the rates of interceptions and incompletions have dipped over time especially in the last 20 25 years of the NFL it begins to that argument completely falls apart and you're sort of left with the question of why do they not pass more and run less to the point that the efficiency of those two actions sort of starts to equalize it's almost like a Nash equilibrium in in game theory and now that coaches are asking that they're like why why do we why should we pay a running back a lot of money when having a great running game isn't even necessarily predictive of how good our offense is going to be anywhere near as much as having a good passing game. So I think all of those things are kind of playing a role in the devaluation of running backs. And it's sort of bad news if you came of age during like the Emmett Smith era and you, your heroes were all running backs. And then now all of a sudden when you want to get paid as a running back, they're like, no, nah, sorry, you're, uh, you're just not valuable anymore. Yeah, and I think you look at what happened last year when the Rams signed Todd Gurley to this, I think it was a four-year, $60 million extension, which even last year people were criticizing that as, um, you know, don't give this much money to a running back. They're replaceable. You can get the same level of production essentially off the scrap heap, the bottom of the draft, undrafted players. And look what happened to Gurley. I mean, he got hurt, you know, late last year in the first year of his contract. And I think if... NFL front offices needed any more evidence that this was a bad idea. This was kind of like the closing argument. So I think there's a lot of people out there that think Todd Gurley might be the last one to receive that type of contract. It's really shifted that far in the, in the favor of the front offices. 
Well, that's also a great point, Jeff, is that, you know, a lot of people during the season were describing the Rams offensive line as being, you know, having one of the best performances of all time. Uh, and then, yeah, you see, you know, when Gurley goes down, they don't miss a beat. In some ways, they, they do even better. And that's another reason, I think, why smart teams are sort of rethinking the the way that they pay running backs is this idea of like, even if you had a, a, the league's best rushing attack, you wouldn't have any way of knowing what how much of it was the offensive line and how much of it was the running back. Uh, and here's a great stat from last season. ESPN Stats and Info tracks yards before first contact and after first contact. About two-thirds of all rushing yards in the league were before first contact. In other words, they're freebie yards that the offensive line has kind of cleared for running backs. When you look at Ezekiel Elliott's stats and for the Cowboys, probably even a greater proportion were before first contact given their offensive line. Most of these stats could be replicated by someone else. So why would we pay a premium price for somebody when we could plug in a lesser talent at running back and still get similar results? So Elliott's contention would be he led the league in rushing yards by a lot and is, you know, your every down back. The analytics argument against giving any running back more money is that there isn't much of a difference between the league leader in rushing and anyone else. And so our, our colleague, Josh Hermsmeyer, wrote a piece last week about Ezekiel Elliott and about how much money he's really worth. And this, the whole article was predicated on run just does not add as much win probability as a pass really ever. And that's important, too, because, you know, you could look at yards, you could look at even something like expected points, which is how many scoreboard, you know, did this play improve our odds of scoring points, uh, you know, after the play versus before. But maybe the argument for running is that, there are other benefits. You use it to kill clock. You use it situationally, and it can kind of make up some of that two yards per play difference that, that you would uh, see if you only looked at yards. But uh, that's what I liked about what Josh did was he even looked at that, and you would think that it would show up in win probability if you're chewing up clock consistently and, and kind of get, even if you're not gaining yards, you're sort of churning away the last few minutes of a, of a game that you're winning. Well, and what Josh did was look at actually only the first three quarters oh. to kind of eliminate that fourth quarter, just, you know, get, get this game over situations um, and found that th- th- it just didn't matter as much. But this, there were situations where running does matter. And in those, Ezekiel wasn't elite. In Elliott's defense, which uh, I'm firmly in the camp that he should not be given a big contract extension I think you know especially for the Cowboys who also have to pay Prescott and a bunch of other guys uh, I think their money would uh, be better spent elsewhere but you know each situation is different there's a lot of factors I think one sort of x factor is the idea of using the running backs in the passing game where Elliott was quite effective last year and I think sometimes the analysis of the rush offense doesn't always reflect the evolution of the position, you look at the way Saquon Barkley is used in the passing game, you look at the way Alvin Kamara is used the same way. And Le'Veon Bell also, that was one of his big and arguments. And Le'Veon Bell, yes. And and also the other thing is setting up play action. That's one thing that they say really hurt the Rams when they lost Gurley was the threat of Gurley was gone. And with C.J. Anderson back there, 
you know, the, the play action was not as effective for Jared Goff, and it, it did have this sort of cascading effect down the offense. That's what makes sort of advanced metrics with the NFL complicated when you're changing the personnel and every team's got a different scheme and, and there's all these factors that are going on even when you're not when you don't have the ball in your hand. That being said, that does not sound like a very compelling argument uh, <laughs> if I was Elliot's agent, but it, there's a lot at play here, I guess is, is what I'm saying. I mean, the way we think about running backs as stars and as crucial to an NFL offense as a quarterback is, that's changed almost completely. When we look back in the history of the NFL, there were lots of teams that could win a Super Bowl with a crappy quarterback, but then you'd have a star running back. But now you don't really see that. The teams that are going to go far in the playoffs have great quarterback play. I mean, imagine the Patriots without Brady, they're not going to do anything. So should running backs be thought of still as stars worth a ton of money? Well, yeah, and the Patriots are a great example, too, because they seldom have a really like featured back yeah. that takes the bulk of the rushes. Sometimes, you know, they've had like Corey Dillon in the past and, and uh, you know, occasionally they'll have someone. But more often than not, they have... Their guy that's their rushing specialist, they have their receiving specialist, like a James White type mm-hmm. or something like that. They uh, they try to have someone, uh, and I think our colleague Mike Salfino wrote something about this last year, which I thought was really smart, was they like to have somebody who's not a tell, uh, and basically when he's on the field, it's like 50-50. It could be a pass, it could be a run, just to keep the defense honest and to keep them from being able to kind of know from the personnel. And then they'll just sometimes they'll plug in a receiver like Cordero Patterson at running back and it works. So the Patriots are a great example of just like extreme running back by committee. I think that it's no coincidence that that's been part of their really unprecedented level of success in the modern game is that they don't pay a lot for running backs. They do use rookies when possible and kind of cheaper options when possible. And they break up the the, the job description of a running back, which used to go to majority to like one guy back in the 80s and, and even the 90s. And they just sort of break it up and give the different parts to a bunch of different specialists who are probably better at each of those activities than the, the one featured back would have been at any of them in the past. You're exactly right. The thing is about the Patriots, they actually are investing a lot of money in the position as a whole because they're spreading that out amongst James White and Sonny Michelle and Rex Burkhead. They're just not giving it all to one player. You talked about the injury risk of any given running back, doesn't that make sense to sort of mitigate the risk of one guy going down if you have a bunch of different guys who can kind of swap in? Yeah, no, I think it totally makes sense. Do you think fantasy football has contributed to this and how we see running backs? So I have drafted Patriots running backs repeatedly to very poor results. I finally learned my lesson, but you draft a guy in fantasy football who's going to be on the field every play. You hate getting into a running back, you know, by committee situation as a fan. And so I think we we value things in that way, maybe partially because of how we see it as fantasy football. I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think there's definitely, it's definitely one area where fantasy and reality in terms of football divide pretty dramatically. I mean, Saquon Barkley is amazing at fantasy football, and he's obviously good on the field. 
You know who's not good? The Giants. <laughs> Barkley is helping fantasy teams, but he's not helping actual teams. I think it does highlight the point. Well, it highlights two points. One, th- there's a reason why these guys are stars. And this is sort of the strange thing in sports. I mean, you, you go to a Cowboys game, you're going to see Elliott jerseys everywhere. He's scoring touchdowns. He's, you know, making the big plays. And he's the ones that, like, people are looking up to and they want to buy his jersey. And they, So he's definitely a star. And that position will always have star power. But if you're one of these guys and you're, you see the star power you have and you're not getting paid, you can understand the frustration that's going on here. Likewise, I think fantasy also highlights the replacement angle. I mean, how many times have you had uh, a running back get hurt on your fantasy team? You pick up the backup. Eh, it's pretty much the same. Or you pick up someone else's backup and he gets the production of the starter that someone else owns. I mean, it just shows you see it all the time in, in fantasy sports where really just about opportunity rather than actual talent. And I think the rise of points per reception in uh, in fantasy football sort of mirrors like attempts to maybe devalue running backs and and make um, either guys that are good at rushing and receiving more valuable. Or also, I mean, you've seen wide receivers be drafted a lot higher in fantasy in recent years than ever before uh, in leagues that reward receiving and i think that's like an attempt to make it just not be automatic that a running back would be taken you know with almost every first round pick that in turn i think is an attempt to mirror the way that actual football is played now where running backs aren't as valuable one of the reasons why probably the scoring system was the way it was in terms of rewarding yards and touchdowns and so forth was that it rewarded rushing because rushing was a big part of the game. It was like Walter Payton and and guys like that. Uh, And so, you know, I think changes to the scoring system to make it more friendly to uh, non-running backs are an attempt to move out of that mindset uh, in which football was when fantasy football was originally invented. We think about changes in sports over the past couple of decades in terms of how analytics is shaping, you know, our understanding of sports and then changing the sports themselves. We've seen that in the NBA, particularly when it comes to big men. Centers in the NBA have almost disappeared. The traditional centers from, you know, the 80s and early 90s. Analytics have played a role in that, right, Neil? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that you can't play someone that really can't switch anymore, that can't defend the pick and roll, that on offense can't space the floor at least somewhat and be a threat to shoot, and now especially shoot a three. I mean, you've got guys like Brooke Lopez taking 60 or more percent of his shots from beyond the arc. I think that that is what big men have had to do to survive in the game now, and it all does go back to that idea that you know, certain places on the floor are more efficient than other ones. We talked to Kirk Goldsberry about this uh, a couple months ago, and that realization came through analytics, and it has drastically reshaped what we think of the role of a big man as being. So I could see this whole debate about running back value 
basically mirror that exactly of realizing that certain activities on the on the field are not as valuable and then trying to kind of reckon with that and and what is you know who are the winners and who are the losers uh at like a human player level i think it can take a lot of toll i think probably psychologically on a player to realize that the expectations that they always had about their own value and the value of the players that they aspired to be have sort of shifted underneath them without them having any control over that i i think that there's still a fundamental difference though between the nba and the nfl i mean in the nba the analytics are fully being implemented on the court and and likewise in baseball as well whereas in the nfl we're seeing this right now and it's affecting the team building and the capology in terms of like paying the running backs i think it's capology i just want to pause for a second on that i love that phrase yeah (laughs) yeah where it's not showing up and Josh, you know, Hermsmeyer will be the first to tell you this is, you know, you're still not really seeing this in the way games are being called on a, you know, Sunday by Sunday basis. There's still teams, you know, doing the old school thing of running on first down, running on second down, passing on third down, punting. <laughs> I was talking about the Jets right there in case you didn't pick that up. <laughs> we, we knew. There's still so much of that. It has so much further to go to sort of catch up to what the numbers are saying, where in the NBA, it's it's real, it's happening. And I think you're seeing that trickle down to the college and high school level, where if you're 6'10", 6'11", 7 feet, that's not a free ticket to the NBA anymore. And a lot of those guys, you know, as they're coming up, are, are learning to sort of adapt their games. You basically have to be 7 feet tall, and you have to be able to knock down threes if you, if you want to do that now. Whereas... Just being seven feet tall was probably good enough, uh, you know, at a certain time. Taco Fall is going to develop a three-point shot and look out, world. <laughs> oh, that's going <laughs> to be the on. most unstoppable player ever. <laughs> um, but, Jeff, why do you think that it has taken longer in football to kind of get to that point uh, that, that basketball and certainly baseball already reached? Is it just that the stats are more difficult to interpret, more difficult to collect, and therefore more difficult to sort of argue a point off of to coaches and kind of make them change their mind away from the old school mentality? Yeah, no, I think that's it. I mean, I think, you know, the reasons we cited earlier is that it's not clean. You know, it's not five guys on a court and we can measure everything they do on offense and defense. It's not one batter versus a pitcher and we can just clearly tell who's winning that matchup and and what they're um, producing. There's a lot of noise. There's 11 guys on the field and there's a lot of things going on. And I think, you know, most of these teams have been pretty good about hiring analytics departments and bringing in people. They're just not necessarily changing their ways or they're slow to change their ways. I mean, obviously, this is all on a grade. I mean, some teams are better than this than others. But I, I think really think it is that kind of holdover old school mentality of, you know, this is the right way to do it. I don't need some nerd with a spreadsheet telling me what I'm supposed to do. That's exactly what happened in baseball. It just hasn't quite, you know, convinced the decision makers yet. I guess that this wave of like McVeigh clones that have invaded the coaching ranks over the last off season or, or at least couple seasons probably signals like more openness to these new types of 
play calling philosophies and everything than ever before, right? I mean, these guys are steeped in this idea of passing being the most valuable thing you can do and passing in unconventional situations and kind of, you know, rethinking the, the way in which efficiency works. I mean, even some of the, even some of the lesser uh, McVeigh clones like Cliff Kingsbury, who uh, none of us could really understand what he had done to actually deserve being an NFL coach, he has talked about you know some of these forward-thinking ideas. Now, we'll see if they implement it, actually, when he becomes a coach. But, I mean, sort of that whole lineage that I think has far more taken over college football, and, and now you... You see college football maybe at like the same point as like the NBA when it comes to threes. College football, especially certain conferences like the Big 12 when it comes to passing, just seem like it it has fully been integrated into the way that they play football. Uh, and, and so maybe a lot of those guys now coming up into the NFL and having influence there could be sort of the tipping point that leads to the uh, a lot more change in the NFL a lot more quickly. Yeah, but then what happens if Kingsbury and the Cardinals completely flop? I mean, does it take a step backwards? I, I do think the change is coming. It's just gradual. I mean, we're seeing, you know, more teams go forward on fourth down, more teams go for two-point conversions, you know, do all these things that the numbers really are really stark on. But again, it's not across the league. It's it's really certain teams and certain coaches. But the more examples we have of a team taking this type of approach – you know, this, you know, pass heavy offenses and doing things unconventionally succeeding, you know, like say the Eagles did a couple of years ago or, or the Rams, you know, if they win a Super Bowl next year and the next couple of years with McVay, I, I think it'll eventually, you know, it's a copycat league and teams don't want to be left behind. The more success stories, the more it'll eventually kind of come around and then probably change from there. My question is, as a fan, are the games better because of it you know we've had people complain people we've had uh our editor-in-chief yeah, numerous <laughs> people on this show complain. complain about home runs we had kurt goldsberry complain about three-pointers you know ezekiel elliott would complain about <laughs> <laughs> not enough emphasis his, on the, his current salary he wants to call in and talk about about how running backs are are valued we'd love love to have it give us a call zeke well i don't necessarily agree with all those people i think a passing is fun <laughs> Home runs are fun. Three pointers are fun. I mean, it does. Totally agree, Jeff. This is put away your spreadsheet, nerd. This isn't the New Jersey Devils uh, winning the Stanley Cup with the neutral zone trap (laughs) by basically making hockey as boring as possible and succeeding. Which was a thing that happened. I'll take take your guys' word for it. (laughs) And they eventually, the league had to change the rules. Uh, That's a different podcast topic that I'm very passionate about. But aren't the NBA, the NFL and baseball lucky that all of the things that analytics have kind of pushed them toward are like mostly exciting things? Yes. I mean some people would argue about the time baseball takes and, and that there aren't as many balls in play, but home runs are cool. Uh, that's I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine the reverse where it was like the the best thing the numbers said the best thing to do was to drag bunt every time. I mean like <laughs> Well it's I guess a homer. the shift maybe like, why are you complaining? <laughs> And again, passing, you know, as fun as it is to have a superstar running back who's, you know, breaking off 60-yard touchdown runs, you know, every game, I I think at the end of the day, you're not going to see a lot of fans, like, you know, 
throwing away the NFL from their regular viewing because, you know, there's too much passing. Last night, I saw a triple play and eight home runs. So I'm feeling okay about the state (laughs) of sports right now. Especially since your team was the beneficiary of those actions. Go analytics. All right. We can leave that right there. Before we move on, uh, let's have a quick word from this week's sponsor, Candid. Did you know your teeth move as you get older? I I did not know that. If you're experiencing shifting teeth but dread the thought of braces as an adult, Candid, a clear alternative to braces, could be exactly what you need. With Candid, an experienced, licensed orthodontist in your state creates a customized treatment plan just for you. They'll even create a 3D preview of what the final results will look like. Candid then ships your custom clear aligners directly to your door, saving you the hassle of another trip to the orthodontist's office. Plus, Candid costs 65% less than braces, so you can save thousands of dollars and have straighter teeth in an average of just six months. Get one step closer to straighter, brighter teeth by going to candidco.com slash takedown and use code takedown to get $75 off. That's candidco.com, C-A-N-D-I-D-C-O.com, slash takedown, code takedown for $75 off. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, our rabbit hole most definitely led to a story, it's up on the site right now, about foul balls in baseball. Here to walk us through it is 538 Data Visualization Intern, Annette Choi. Hi, Annette. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. So talk to us about this really cool story you did about foul balls. So I felt like there were a lot of one-off stories that I was reading about spectators getting injured, families coming to watch a ball game, ending up with a concussion or broken bones. And that led me to want to answer this big question of how dangerous are foul balls? Is there something bigger we should be looking at? And so, you know, I reached out to Neil and we both started researching a little bit to see if there was foul ball specific data out there. And Baseball Savant does a really good job compiling specific ball data, like exit velocity, which inning, which pitcher, everything like that. But not so much for foul balls. So that's how we decided to collect our own data. Collecting our own data. That's always always fun. fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how did you do it? How did you find those those foul balls and where they landed? So because this was all hand picked data, we wanted to keep the size pretty manageable, which is why we settled on looking at 10 different days at 10 different stadiums. So we picked the 10 most foul heavy days at 10 different stadiums. And that's just because um, we didn't want to repeat stadiums. There's so much variation in how seating is set up, altitude, um, just so many factors. And we wanted to have as much variety as we could. So you watched all of these, uh, these foul balls, right? How many, how many foul balls did you watch in total? I did. I watched 906 <laughs> foul balls twice. Oh my God. And how, how long did that take you? Um, I think it was two to three just full days of sitting in front of my computer watching foul balls. I mean, on the one hand, that's 
a lot of work. On the other hand, it's just watching baseball. It's yeah. pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if my whole day is watching, you know, foul balls, it's not a terrible day. <laughs> not not bad. So then what did you do as you watched the, the baseballs? How did you categorize them? So first we created a chart of zones. And those zones are just something that Neil and I came up with to mark down where the ball seemed to land. And from there, if a camera followed the ball, then we that's the zone we used. And if the camera didn't follow the ball, then we used our best judgment with what we called a predicted zone. And that's something that after watching a lot of and a lot of foul balls, we were able to kind of pinpoint where approximately it, which zone it would have landed in. And your predictions were really good on the balls that like when you looked at ones where you ended up knowing where the ball actually landed, your prediction off the bat was had like a 99% accuracy rate, right? Yeah, um, our predictions um, were correct on 381 of the 393 balls, so that's a success rate of 96.9%. Pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that gave you confidence, right, that you sort of, even when they didn't show where the ball landed, and they didn't show for a good amount of them, right? Like what, what share of all the balls did they end up not actually showing the destination for? Out of the 906, 393 of them cameras did follow. Yeah. But yeah, we, again, like this is 10, 10 days at 10 different stadiums. This is more of like an experiment and a project to look at what fo- what the situation looks like in regards to foul balls right now. It's not a representation of, you know, every season. This is just for this season. But by using those predictions and looking at that, we were able to kind of get, kind of gauge what it looks like right now. And so these were foul balls, like you tracked any foul ball, not only ones that ended in the stand, some were still in the field of play, um, but you still tracked those to see where they were going. Exactly. We tracked all the foul balls from that day. What were your findings from all of this? The scariest foul ball, so those are the ones that, you know, hit the toddler at this year's Cubs Astro game and then blinded a man at Wrigley Field in 2017. Those are the most scary foul balls. Those are the ones with high EVs, particularly the line drives. Those are the ones we were most focused on. So of those high flies, 71.8% landed in zones four and five, which those are the open seats that go down the first and third baselines. And then of all the high exit velocity line drives, all of them that we looked at landed in those same zones. So those are the non-netted zones following the baselines. So those are kind of past the dugouts, right? Right, past the dugouts, all the way down to the foul lines. Gotcha. And some, I know some stadiums do now have some netting that extends a little bit past the dugouts, but it's pretty scattershot still. Like, it's not a policy across MLB to have netting past the dugouts, right? Right. It's not very consistent. Mm. (laughs) In 2015, the MLB recommended that all stadiums have netting down to near the end of both dugouts. Stadiums have been doing that. As of 2018, all 30 stadiums have done that. But since then, different stadiums have gone to different extents. Just last weekend, I was at Yankee Stadium and I saw that they had netting down not to the foul poles, but kind of midway between the foul poles and the dugouts. And also on the screens, there were projecting like warnings asking spectators to be alert which i haven't seen before at least in the stadiums that i've been to so i don't know if that's new different stadiums are taking different extents it looks like the stadiums that have experienced more serious injuries with their spectators have been taking this issue a little bit more seriously i'm so happy you wrote this story because this has long been something i've ranted about um 
particularly in comparison to the NHL again with what happened at the Columbus Blue Jacket game where the girl gets killed and they league-wide make the netting, uh, you know, above the glass in the, in the arenas mandatory across the league. It's interesting that the Japanese league, and you mentioned this in the story and you could tell us about this, has a completely different policy playing the same game with the netting. So I'm curious um, sort of how the two leagues compare and if you think like eventually this is going to be a mandatory thing in Major League Baseball where the netting has to run you know, further down the, the base paths. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the situation in Japan at Tokyo Dome. Um, unprotected seats are kind of like a luxury. There are what's called exciting seats, which <laughs> are non-netted seats. Those are the only seats where there is no netting and every spectator gets a helmet and a glove and a piece of paper that warns them of the dangers of foul balls. <laughs> That's kind of amazing, the VIP treatment for, like, danger. <laughs> right. I love it. <laughs> Here we're like, no, danger is just how you experience baseball. <laughs> right, you would have like, to be a VIP to not to, experience exactly, the danger. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Other leagues around the world, like in Japan and South Korea, there there is foul pole to foul pole netting. That's just the standard there. And that's the change that, based on your research, seems to be sort of what is needed uh, in terms of the difference between like where the current netting standard ends and, and sort of moving out toward the foul pole. Those zones, the ones that you labeled four and five, depending on whether it's on the left field or right field side, those are the ones that get, like you said, uh, the almost all of the really high exit velocity um, line drives that go foul and just a disproportionate share of the foul balls. Anyway, it's almost like the two zones that are you know behind the dugouts, which are currently covered by the netting, get a lot fewer foul balls, at least in the in the sample of games that that you looked at. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Those two, like what you said, zone four and five, those are the two areas that were the areas that I was most interested in. Those areas are the reasons why I wanted to look at the numbers, because that's where the most serious injuries seem to be happening. So it was interesting to look at other leagues and to look at what the standards were there. And I can't say that there will be foul pole to foul pole netting in the next couple of years. There is a good amount of pushback. I find that the pushback really interesting because if you're sitting, you know, people who sit right behind home plate have always, you know, as, as long as I can remember, have always had netting in front of them. And I've never heard complaints from the people sitting there getting waited on in games <laughs> about the netting. Marlins being, man. Yeah, exactly. You don't hear Marlins man complaining about the netting. So I don't, I'm surprised that there is so much pushback that the safety of fans comes secondary to people who think they won't be able to see through a net. I don't know. It's interesting. Did you get feedback to the article from people who are just opposed to the concept of, of more netting? The overall um, reaction I got was, yes, there should be more netting. This is something we should be taking seriously. But there was a good, there were a good amount of people who also were saying, you know, if you're going to come to a baseball game, you shouldn't be on your phone. You should be more alert. But, you know, when a lot of these injuries, you know, it's children, two to four year olds. Also, you know, so one thing I really love to do at baseball games is score the game. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, right. looking down at my scorecard, filling in what happened, and I might miss a pitch because of that. So is, should I not be doing that? That seems like an integral part of being a fan to me anyway. Uh, uh, so. Especially a hardcore fan. Yeah. Uh, but along those lines, too, uh, uh, I believe there was a story at the Washington Post that really showed, like, on one of these super high exit velocity foul balls to one of those zones four or five in, in your chart, Annette, that, like, 
the hu- the human level of reaction time that that you can kind of move and defend yourself against a ball uh the, these balls are coming faster than a person could possibly react to yeah, or you would at least have to be like a a high level major league level athlete to be able to have the reaction time and the reflexes to get out of the way. So that's another way in which that argument just falls flat for me. You know, you don't come to a game to test your reflexes and, and <laughs> guess that they're on the same level as like a hitter trying to react to a, an Aroldis Chapman fastball. Like that's not at all a realistic expectation. Right. I was thinking about that article too. And, you know, according to the chart that the Washington Post made, you have seconds, if that, less than two seconds to react if you're looking at an injury like the two-year-old girl who was struck at the Cubs game. That's 1.5 seconds for a two-year-old to react. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Annette, for, for both doing this really interesting story and for coming on to talk about it. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe, review, and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Annette, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Mm